Tonight we're going to hear Jude, the next lesson, which will be lesson number eight. These are the pre-recorded lessons from Robbie for when he is out of town. Alan couldn't be here tonight to introduce the lesson to you, so I get to. Let's watch the lesson. And remember Robbie in your prayers while he's overseas. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in fellowship. Uh, Scripture teaches that whenever a Christian sins, that they do not lose their salvation. That is clear from what we've studied in Eternal Security in this study on Jude, but that we do indeed lose fellowship with God. And when we confess our sins, that is recovered and our forward momentum in the Christian life resumes. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will begin. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word and to reflect upon the truth of your word and that we may come to understand how exclusive this claim is and how vital it is and that uh, <clears throat> it's very easy for us at times to merely give lip service to the fact that we believe the Bible is your word and not uh, carry out the implications of that within our own thinking or within our own life. Father, we pray that as we study today that we might be challenged to truly take a stand for your word and to make that a vital part of both our thinking and our lifestyle. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the previous lesson in uh, in Jude, uh, we took time to begin to look at the question, what is really of the essence in terms of what we believe in, in Christianity, of all the doctrines, all the things that we believe that the Bible teaches What are those elements that are truly at the core, that are truly essential uh, for Christian belief? What are the fundamentals, we might say, of the faith? And I began to talk last time about the importance of inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of the Word of God as at the very core of our understanding of the fundamentals, the foundational uh, beliefs, of Christianity, that that without which we have no Christianity. We have no unique Christian teaching or belief system. Now, as we get into our study in Jude, I just want to review a little bit the third verse, which we began the last time. In the third verse, it is opening 
of his, uh, the first major section of development in Jude. Jude writes, beloved, addressing those who are believers, those whom he has a relationship uh, with in somewhere probably in uh, what the area we now know as Turkey, possibly uh, Asia Minor, because this is the same area out of which uh, uh, Peter had written. They were primarily Jewish in their background. Uh, Peter in Second Peter had warned that there was a coming defection from the truth. J- Jude writes in light of the present reality of that defection from the truth. So he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is a verse that gives us a a window, as I pointed out the last time, into the process of inspiration of Scripture, how God works in and through the writers of Scripture to produce the the uh, uh, actual writing, the original, what is called the autograph, uh, autograph not being someone's signature, but the original writing of the Scripture, and that uh, God worked through the circumstances and the personality and the style of each writer. So here we have Jude, an apostle who intends to write about one topic, and then he is so moved by God the Holy Spirit that he writes on a completely different topic. And he uses this word spude, meaning um, eagerness or earnestness or diligence. And he he's basically saying he was very diligent. He was thinking hard, working hard, writing, concentrating on one topic that needed to be discussed related to uh, our common salvation or soteriology. But he says, I had a necessity, and he uses the present tense of this verb echo, which means to have or to hold something, uh, plus another noun, uh, ananke, which means a compulsion, a necessity. So this is merely a way of expressing the fact that he had, he says, I have a necessity, I have a compulsion, something within him uh, is pressing upon his mind to write on a different topic. And so he finds, he says, I have a compulsion to write to you, exhorting you. Now this word, parakaleo, for exhortation, uh, is the same word that's used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit as the parakletos. That's the noun form, uh, parakletos or paraklesis. Uh, is another form of the noun, and he's writing exhorting. Now, parakaleo tells us that this is the style of this, or the or the genre, we might say, uh, the type of literature that Jude is. It's not just a letter; it is an exhortation. If you went through me with my study of, of Hebrews, I stated that Hebrews was an exhortation. An exhortation is a challenge a challenge to application to the audience. So it's not simply a letter. He's not just giving us a doctrinal, a logical doctrinal discourse like Paul did with Romans. He's not writing a historical narrative like uh, Luke did uh, with the gospel or with the book of Acts. Uh, he's not addressing specific questions as Paul did in 1 Corinthians but he is writing an exhortation, a specific challenge, a pointed challenge to his audience that they need to contend 
earnestly for the faith. And the verb for translated contend is this word ep ungenizomai, ep ungenizomai. It's a present active infinitive expressing his purpose in writing. It's usually a word found for expressing the struggle, the competition, the effort that goes forth in an athletic competition to strive, to earnestly contend uh, for something. One commentator on Jude, uh, Edmund Hebert, uh, writes of this particular verb that it was also used more generally of any conflict, contest, debate, or lawsuit. Involved is the thought of the expenditure of all one's energy in order to prevail. I think that's an important concept. This is, this is not something that is done in a haphazard manner. It's not sort of a secondary uh, secondary desire, secondary objective that comes up. It is a recognition that we're giving all of ourselves, we're giving all of our energy to this, to contending uh, for the faith, to make sure that the faith is preserved uh, accurately, the, that the faith is preserved without dilution. So he says, involved is the thought of the expenditure of all one's energy in order to prevail. Here is often the verb is used metaphorically to note a spiritual conflict. So immediately brings into focus that this is part of the uh, angelic conflict, part of spiritual warfare. We're constantly under attack, both from our sin nature internally, the cosmic system or the world system externally, Satan externally to compromise the truth of God's word. So he says that we are, this is used metaphorically to denote a spiritual conflict in which believers are engaged. According to Alfred, this would be Henry Alfred, a well-known commentator from the 19th century on the Greek text. According to Alfred, the preposition of P in the compound gives the purpose for which the fight is to be waged. The defensive nature of the conflict is made clear by the following dative for the faith. So it is the, the purpose for this is, is the sense of, uh, of fighting, the struggle, and it is for the faith. Now this word translated faith is the Greek noun pistis, and it not only means the act of believing, but it also refers or describes the content of what is believed. So there is a body of belief here, and, and the fact is that this re- represents it as once for all delivered to the saints. It is a, viewed as a completed body of, of, of revelation, a body of beliefs, a completed set of doctrines or teachings that are distinct and unique and essential to Christianity. But we ought to ask the question, what exactly does it mean to be essential? Now, recently, the first time you began to listen to this series, I was away in, in, in the Ukraine. One of the things I like to do when I go away uh, to the Ukraine, usually I teach material that I've been teaching there for many years. Everything's set, ready to go. So I have a lot of opportunity while I am there to catch up on reading, catch up on looking at some uh, DVDs perhaps or are studying things that I have just never quite get around to when I'm home due to various interruptions and other uh, things that come up uh, at the la- last minute. And one of the things I wanted to focus on a little bit in light of the uh, Chafer Conference that uh, came up in March of 2012 was on the area of textual criticism. A recent book came out by uh, <clears throat> the name of uh, Revisiting the Corruption 
of the Greek New Testament by uh, Dan, edited by Dan Wallace, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary and whose specialty is on the the text of Scripture. And Dan, I have a lot of respect for Dan's efforts. I I often disagree with him on key theological points. He tends to be have a lordship view of the gospel. He uh, holds to a progressive view of dispensationalism. Um, there are a number of passages where I would dispute his understanding of the text theologically. He doesn't believe that abide is fellowship, but all believers abide, various positions like that. He has <coughs> other views of a theology that I would uh, not be comfortable with. He has some views of the text that I am not comfortable with. But he does a, a good job of defending the historical accuracy of the transmission of the text, although we have some different views on textual, textual criticism as well. And, um, and, this, and this book is really related to a debate that was also held uh, last year in October, 1st of October uh, in 19, uh, 2011 uh, at SMU, between Dan Wallace representing a conservative view of the text and uh, a very, very liberal scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman, whose ideas uh, that are very critical of our uh, text of Scripture, that he questions whether or not we really have anything close to the original documents, and he makes it sound in many of his statements that we have a corrupt text. And so he... um, but even Bart Ehrman in the uh, a recent book that he wrote on how the uh, writers of Scripture corrupted the words of Jesus, when the second uh, printing came out in paperback, the editors, and he obviously had some knowledgeable, theologically knowledgeable editors who understood the questions that were being raised out by the uh, uh, those who did not agree with Ehrman, added an appendix to his uh, to to Airman's uh, paperback edition, which doesn't it's not in the hard copy, and he asks that there's a Q and A, and he asks several questions of of Airman, and one of the questions that he asked was, when all is said and done, and you talk about all of the various uh, differences that occur in various uh, t- uh, manuscripts that we have, copies we have of the uh, original New Testament, since we don't have the original documents, do any of these changes? And I've pointed out to all of you before many times that these changes are mostly spelling changes or word order changes. Very, very few affect anything of, of any substance whatsoever. And so this editor asked him, says, when it's all said and done, do any of these changes affect any of the essential beliefs of Christianity? And Ehrman has to admit, no, they don't. But he, he, the way, he has this tendency to shape his answers in a way that it still conveys skepticism. I mean, Bart Ehrman to me is the classic person who looks at a glass and it's never half full, it's always half empty. It's always, he always has this negative skeptical view of whatever it is he's, he's looking at. Uh, Dan Wallace does an excellent job of refuting many of his contentions and showing that, um, that, uh, that he's just not right. But even in his answers, I hear this same terminology coming out of Dan Wallace's mouth is that the essentials are not affected. My question to both of them would be, what do you mean by essentials? Are we saying, when you say the, use this phrase, the essentials of Christianity, are you, 
are you saying the same thing? Are you referring to the same body of beliefs? Are you talking about the same uh, fundamental, foundational, unchanging core doctrines of Christianity that that uh, distinguish Christianity from all other all other world religions? And so this is the idea that Jude communicates here: is that we are to contend or strive or fight diligently and earnestly for the faith, that is, for this set body of beliefs uh, which were once for all delivered to the saints. Now, in terms of contending, I think there are two areas in which we all need to contend for the faith. The first is internally, and the second is externally. I think the foundational battle for every one of us is internally. We need to contend for the faith in our own soul. We need to recognize that there is a battle for truth, that takes place in our own soul. The sin nature wants to reject the truth of God and assert its own autonomy. And then there is, as a believer, our new nature uh, in Christ that wishes to uh, focus on the truth and wishes to grow and mature uh, as we grow. And so there is this internal struggle. It's the war of the flesh versus the new life we have in Christ and walking by the Spirit. So the first battle is to contend for truth in our own soul and to understand what the faith consists of and why it is, why it is essential and not, uh, make that term too broad. Uh, we don't want to make it too narrow either. There are some people who want to, uh, want to uh, make it so narrow that every everything that uh, that they believe is essential, but we have to look and identify just exactly what are the the core foundational fundamental uh, fundamental beliefs that distinguish Christianity from anything else. Then externally, there should always be a a willingness to contend for truth within the local church to maintain the purity of the teaching in the local church, and this is why local churches have doctrinal statements. But just a word of warning on doctrinal statements, I often have have people who will uh, come to me and they'll say, oh, well, I looked at so-and-so's doctrinal statement, and it's, it's, it seems very good. There's been a trend in the last number of years, last 30 or 40 years, to to minimize doctrinal statements and not to get very technical in a doctrinal statement. Of course, this hasn't affected us. If you read our doctrinal statement, it's pretty technical. And that's because uh, the details are really important. But even if you have just your sort of generic doctrinal statement in many Bible churches, and I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, picking up the thread that I stopped on in the last lesson about uh, about the history of fundamentalism, uh, within the so-called Bible church movement, which, as we know it, especially in Texas, has its uh, roots in Dallas Theological Seminary uh, theology and history, uh, that even uh, among Bi- many Bible churches, they simply adopted the Dallas Theological Seminary doctrinal statement as their doctrinal statement. And so it's good. But the problem is, in most churches, isn't really with with a doctrinal statement per se, it is with their philosophy of ministry. And I cannot tell you how many times over the course of my life when I've been aware of a man who has gone to a particular church to be the pastor and some sort of disruption occurs within the first a few months or years that he is there because his philosophy of ministry is different from the traditional philosophy of ministry of the church. 
and that this is really where the battle is being fought today. And I found that many people uh, affirm, and many pastors and many churches will affirm a historically conservative, biblically-based doctrinal statement, but then they compromise it in their philosophy of ministry. In other words, how they, wh- why they think the local church exists and how they think the local church should conduct itself in matters of worship, in matters of Sunday school, in matters of its it's uh, the the songs that are chosen, the kind of songs that are chosen, the length of the message, the focal point of the pulpit ministry. All of these things are part of a philosophy of ministry, and that is not usually contained in writing anywhere in most churches, and it's usually not contained within a doctrinal statement. And so you can go to one Bible church that has a doctrinal statement that is identical to another Bible church, and yet they are almost 180 degrees opposite one another in terms of what goes on on a day-to-day basis within the structure of the church and Bible classes, Sunday school, worship, all of these other things, simply because they have radically different um, philosophies of ministry. And I think that's also should be part of our understanding of the essentials of Christianity. So you have battles that take place uh, to contend for the faith within the ch- local church as well as outside the local church uh, in light of how evangelicals are fundamentalists, and I'll explain those terms in just a minute, uh, how uh, evangelicals or fundamentalists uh, focus on the essential truths because this does affect organizations that go beyond the the local church. It affects missionary organizations in cases. It affects Bible colleges. It affects seminaries. There are many organizations that exist outside of a local church. Now, there's a lot of debate over uh, the legitimacy of parachurch organizations, but... um, that's be, that uh, goes to a philosophy of ministry, not uh, essential doctrine, and I'm not going to get off into that. I think that that uh, in light of the fact that no local church, unless you're a lo- local church of of many thousands of people, has the resources to do the kinds of things that many other uh, parachurch or those organizations that are beyond the local church parachurch organizations provide, such as a seminary seminary training. This is really something that is supported by a number of local churches that are unable to uh, uh, have someone who has the expertise or the time or the energy to focus on training men for the for the pastoral uh, pastoral ministry. Uh, Jude's warning that we need to contend for the faith is one that is consistent with the other writers of Scripture. Recognition that apostasy is as close as the next day, that someone can come along tomorrow or the next day who begins to influence a local church in an uh, erroneous uh, direction. The Apostle Paul gave this warning to the leaders of the churches in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. On his uh, return to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey, he did not wish to take the time to go to Ephesus, so he stopped off at a uh, small seaport just south of Ephesus called Miletus, and he called the leaders of the churches in Ephesus to him. He said, and he gave them a warning, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which uh, the Holy Spirit has made you over overseers 
to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So this is a responsibility of the pastors to oversee. This relates to their 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 job description. Uh, this they are to oversee or watch over. That focuses on their leadership, administrative responsibilities. Uh, so that and then the next word to shepherd, which is the verb form poimino, uh, to shepherd, which has to do fundamentally with feeding the sheep. Uh, so part of the way in which the overseer leads is through feeding the sheep. These are defined as those that have been purchased or redeemed by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross. Paul goes on to say, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves, when we see the contrast between the sheep and the wolves, the wolves come in to destroy, to eat, to take advantage of, and to feed off of the sheep in the congregation. These are believers. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So this is an external enemy that comes in attacking, persecuting, uh, uh, the Christianity. So there is always this external battle through false doctrine seeking to distract and destroy the truth and the purity of the local church. And then he adds in verse 30, also from among yourselves. See, there will be those pastors who become influenced by various trends in the culture around them. And as they are influenced by these trends, they bleed off and they become, uh, for example, in the uh, Enlightenment period, they think more like Enlightenment rationalists and they, they bring that framework back to the Bible and the Bible gets reinterpreted. This led to the development of Unitarian uh, theology in the 18th century. In the 19th century, you had pastors who went off to Europe for additional uh, training, and there they were influenced by what became known as uh, 19th century Protestant liberalism, which rejected the divine origin of Scripture and also brought in other methodologies that did not assume the divine origin of Scripture, such as historical criticism, which tried to... uh, go in and break down Scripture in terms of different authors and try to basically reinterpret Scripture in light of uh, this 19th century uh, rationalistic methodology rather than accepting on face value the claims that these books were actually written by Moses or Matthew or, or Paul. So there were these pastors then came back from Europe got into their pulpits and taught these things, questioning the uh, Mosaic authorship of Scripture, questioning the uh, Pauline authorship, questioning that these any of the New Testament was even written within uh, the first century. And as they did that, it eroded the faith of those in the church and eventually led to church splits in the late 19th and early 20th century in what became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So Paul says, from among yourselves, men will rise up. And we've seen this even in in recent years. I've mentioned a book called The New Evangelicalism, written by Paul Smith, who uh, is the brother of Chuck Smith, the pastor of a rather large uh, congregation in Southern California, a church called uh, Calvary Chapel that uh, 
spun off many other Calvary chapels. In fact, there's well over three or 400 uh, Calvary chapel churches around the world that all trace their uh, lineage, their genealogy back to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. And they've had a number of splits that have occurred in the last 20 years due to people coming out of their midst teaching false doctrine. One of the earliest was the Vineyard Movement uh, led by John Wimber, who was uh, in uh, uh, tight alliance with another man named Peter Wagner out of Fuller Seminary. And together they uh, uh, they developed this a new theology called the Signs and Wonders Movement that later became known as the Third Wave of the Holy Spirit. And it caused a great division uh, in the church. In fact, Chuck Smith's own son, uh, Chuck Smith Jr., got involved with Wimber after... Um, uh, Chuck Smith had to basically excommunicate Wimber and the Vineyard Movement from among the Calvary chapels. Wimber's church was originally a Calvary chapel, I believe, of Yorba Linda, uh, California. And so after being kicked out of the Calvary Chapel Association, he renamed his church Vineyard Church. And then that spawned a whole uh, number of uh, associations and a number of Calvary chapels went with him. It caused this great division. Uh, Chuck Smith's son... Chuck Smith Jr. and one of his cousins who also ended up being excommunicated by the father, which shows great integrity on the part of Chuck Smith a Sr., that he was holding the doctrinal line that they became very involved with the uh, teaching of Rick Warren and the purpose-driven church and a lot of uh, heretical ideas, non-biblical ideas that are part and parcel of that whole purpose-driven uh, mentality that is not really grounded in, in Scripture. And so Paul Smith wrote an expose of this as sort of a defense of why Calvary Chapel made the decisions they made and the backgrounds for their decisions, and this is a communicated in his book, um, uh, 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 The New Evangelicalism. Unfortunately, one of the areas that he is blind to, because you see Calvary Chapel is the church out of which the whole uh, Jesus movement came in the late 60s and produced uh, uh, modern contemporary Christian music as a as a new form. Uh, in fact, their their <clears throat> music wing also got kicked out of uh, Calvary Chapel because they wanted to start selling their music. And Chuck Smith didn't want didn't believe that this should be a commercial enterprise, and so they also split off from Calvary Chapel in the early 70s and established their own record label called Maranatha. Maranatha Music is one of the top three musical publishing groups in uh, North America now. When the uh, Vineyard Movement split off, uh, they also established their own record label, recording label, called Vineyard Music, and it is another, a second of the three largest uh, music producers and publishers in, in North America. And these two music movements have shaped the... Uh, uh, the, the, what goes on, on in terms of singing and music in, in churches on Sunday morning. But that music conveys a theology, and it conveys the very theology and the very approach to church that Paul Smith and Chuck Smith are really taking a stand against. But because it is so endemic to their own church, Calvary Chapel, 
and everything that it has been over the years that they're sort of blind, they have a blind spot in this one particular area. So Paul Smith does a very good job of analyzing a number of different historical uh, trends in the late 20th century in evangelicalism and pointing out a number of the problems, but he is completely blind to uh, the whole problem of music as the purveyor and conveyor of many of these uh, terrible theological ideas. So Paul said in Acts 20.30, from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. See, he begins the same way in verse 28. Take heed. Now in verse 31 he repeats it. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So part of the role of the pastor is to warn the congregation passionately about false teaching and the impact of false teachers within the congregation. Now, as I went through this, a little bit of explanation there, I talked some about the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which is sort of where I stopped the last time, because whenever we talk about the foundational beliefs of Christians. We have to deal with this issue of authority, this issue of how do we know truth, how do we know what is true, what is essential, and what is not non-essential. And so the foundation for any religious system or any belief system, any philosophical system, is always has to do with authority, this whole issue of authority and for Christians in historic, uh, traditional Christian theology, this is the area known as bibliology or the study of the Bible and the authority of the Bible, the biblical doctrine of the Bible. And in bibliology, we seek to answer various questions such as how was the Bible revealed, trying to understand the process of inspiration. Now, there are some different views on inspiration. There are those who believe that inspiration is a dictation of God, uh, and this might be true in some areas of Scripture, such as God giving the Mosaic law to Moses. Um, and so elements of the Torah were clearly dictated. Others uh, <clears throat> suggest that the um, uh, Bible was revealed merely in terms of ideas. Is it ideas or words? Other questions that come up is, are there errors in our modern uh, modern Bibles, in our modern texts, in our modern English versions? There, there are translations of the Greek and the Hebrew. What about the Greek uh, manuscripts and the Hebrew manuscripts that we have? Uh, some of the manuscripts that we have or have had historically at times weren't any more recent than the 9th or 10th century A.D., almost a 1,000 years after after the New Testament. And at one point, before the discovery of the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, our oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Scriptures dated to the also to the ninth century A.D., uh, a full thousand or eleven hundred years after the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in 1947. Very little difference was discovered between what was written as the Hebrew Scriptures and and um, let's say 1100, 1200, I mean, excuse me, 100, 200 B.C., and um, what, what we had is the Masoretic text in the 8th or 9th, or excuse me, 9th or 10th century uh, A.D., which confirmed the tremendous uh, 
accuracy of the transmission of the text. So are there errors in the Bible? Are there errors in the original writings or not? I mean, if you start with a copy that has errors, then how do you know how many errors have crept in over time? But if you start with an original that has no errors, then you can theoretically get back to an accurate copy of the original. So all of this has to do with understanding the process of inspiration and does, do we have an inerrant text? That is a text, was there originally an inerrant text, a text that was without error and is infallible? And what is the extent of that, uh, of that inerrancy? And this became a major battle, uh, within what became known as fundamentalism in the early 19th century. Now we live in a time when this word fundamentalism has been taken by the media and distorted. And it's been used to, uh, be equated with, uh, religious quacks. And those people who believe in some sort of, uh, uh, crazy, outdated ideas that completely reject any kind of, um, modern science or anything. And so the fundamentalists of Islam, uh, who are the uh, radical is- Islamist terrorists are equated to in, in, in by the news media are suddenly equated to Christian fundamentalists. The only difference is that Christian fundamentalists historically have not been violent, but because the Bible is against violence for that sake. So that the violence of the crusades was antithetical to the revelation of scripture. Whereas the violence of radical Islam is consistent with the uh, uh, teachings of the Quran. And so uh, fundamentalism, though it's received a negative slant in recent years, we will use it within its original historical context right now. And last time I started to point out that the rise of fundamentalism comes out of British and American theology in the 19th century. And there are uh, four strands, four or five strands that I want to pull together for you that led to the development of fundamentalism, and I'll define that term when we get there, in the early 20th century. First of all, you have the thread that came out of Princeton. Princeton uh, Theological Seminary was originally founded uh, to be a training ground for pastors. It was originally called the Log College uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. And it was uh, founded to to train pastors for the pastoral ministry by William Tennant. And he trained his sons and other generations, and eventually uh, it became its own school established as Princeton Theological Seminary. And in the 19th century, this became the bastion of biblically sound conservative theology. Of course, it was extremely Calvinistic. And it was, uh, there was not any dispensationalism at that time, but by the late 19th century, it did become, uh, somewhat hostile to dispensationalism, especially through, uh, the writings of B.B. Warfield and some of his attacks against Lewis Berry Chafer. But the, uh, uh, initial, uh, theologian, uh, who taught theology at Princeton was a man by the name of, uh, uh, August, uh, uh Archibald Augustus. And he was, he taught, uh, Charles Hodge. And, uh, Charles Hodge was so impressed by his mentor, um, that he named his son after him, Archibald Augustus 
uh, Hodge, A.A. Hodge, and his grandson, Casper Hodge. So you have three generation of Hodges who dominated the, um, the, the theology department at Princeton. And it is in those years of the 19th century that historic, the historic view of the Bible as the objective revealed word of God, uh, written by over 40 authors over a period of, of uh, at least a period of uh, 1,500 years or more, uh, written by those who claim to have written it, uh, that this was attacked by the rise of 19th century uh, Protestant liberalism. And so these men uh, really worked hard at articulating, clearly articulating the doctrine of biblical infallibility, and inerrancy. Not that this was not always the view of the church, but these men took its systematization to a much greater level in light of the assaults that were coming uh, at that particular time. Now, a second development came up in the 19th century known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism also had its roots in historic Calvinism, and that is because coming out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1600s, you had, or 1500s, you had this emphasis on literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. And as that worked itself out in terms, in other areas of theology beyond just soteriology or beyond salvation, then, uh, the, uh, early reform, many, many who held a reform theology, many of the Presbyterians, many of the Puritans began to believe in a literal a future millennium a thousand, of a thousand years where Jesus Christ would personally rule and reign uh, from a throne in Jerusalem. And so by the end of the uh, 16th century, by the end of the 15, 1500s, you have the shift developing uh, toward premillennialism. And that sort of reached, a, reached its high watermark in the 1800s. And um, according to J.C. Ryle, well over half of the Anglican Pastors in England in the in the 1800s in the 19th century, well over half were premillennialists, and that also gave them a sympathy towards Israel and towards the Jews and towards a future restoration of the Jewish people uh, in in Israel. Now, as you move historically from the Protestant Reformation up to the beginning of the 19th century, there's uh, there's a recovery of the uh, of the do- doctrine of the literal historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture, which led to an understanding of a future interpretation of prophecy that that Revelation, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and uh, other passages were uh, would be fulfilled in the future. So you had the recovery of futurism. Along with that, you also had a recovery of this view of a future plan that God had for Israel. So there is an incipient understanding here in these years of a distinction of God's plan for Israel and the church. All of this came together in the early 19th century in the thinking of John Nelson Darby. None of the foundational ideas that Darby had were unique to him, but as he lived in a time when there had been a much further development of these three ideas, literal interpretation of Scripture, a futurist uh, interpretation of prophecy, and a distinction between Israel and the church, as he put those together, 
uh, he came to a clearer understanding of, of God's plan as revealed in Scripture, which he called dispensationalism, the identification of different eras in history where God administers his plan and purposes for the human race in different ways, always on the basis of some new revelation. And so John Nelson Darby influenced a tremendous number of people in uh, England and also in the United States, men such as James Hall Brooks, who was a Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. One of his, uh, one of the men he came into contact that he influenced was uh, a Civil War, a Southern Confederate Civil War veteran by the name of uh, Cyrus Ingerson, Schofield, uh, others such as Dwight Moody, who preached revivals in the Union Army, uh, which led to the salvation of Ulysses S. Grant, and then one of Schofield's protégés, Lewis Berry Chafer, who's a founder of Chafer Theological Seminary. Schofield, of course, was instrumental in the founding of, of uh, a number of Bible colleges and institutes uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century schools, such as Philadelphia College of the Bible, now known as Philadelphia Biblical University. Uh, he also was instrumental in founding... Um, uh, a lot of schools through the influence of his study Bible, which came out in 1909 uh, in the first edition. Dwight Moody founded Moody Bible Institute, also a school in Northfield, Massachusetts. And then, of course, Lewis Perry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1923. So the second route of modern fundamentalism was the rise and development of dispensationalism and especially premillennialism, emphasizing a literal future uh, interpretation of prophecy. A third strand that was important was an answer by scholars, conservative biblical scholars, to uh, the the, uh, rising um, Protestant liberalism that was published over a five-year period by... um, uh, called The Fundamentals. Twelve volumes came out in that five-year period, and I want to show you uh, something of them. I have on, uh, I have them in my uh, Logos Bible software, and so The Fundamentals of the Faith, here we shift over here, called The Testimony to the Truth, edited by R.A. Torrey, who was uh, had also president of Moody Bible Institute at one time, as was A.C. Dixon and others, and these were major fundamentalist uh, leaders and pastors, conservatives at the time, uh, came out initially in 10 volumes, was reprinted uh, later uh, in 1917 as a four-volume edition. In the uh, preface, they stated in 1909, God moved two Christian laymen to set aside a large sum of money for issuing 12 volumes that would set forth the fundamentals of the faith, which were to be sent free to ministers of the gospel, missionaries, Sunday school superintendents, and others engaged um, in aggressive Christian work throughout the English-speaking world. Now, uh, last time I think I showed you a little bit of this, but this just shows you uh, the level of teaching. If you're familiar at all with key names, such as in the second chapter of the Mosaic Authorship of the Pentateuch by George Friedrich Wright uh, <clears throat> from Overland College, was a major name in biblical scholarship in the beginning of the 20th century. Had a chapter on the fallacies of, the, of higher criticism. Uh, another chapter of the Bible in modern criticism. Uh, James Orr, another major world-class scholar 
uh, holy wrote a chapter on the holy scriptures and modern negations are claims that it's not really the word of god uh, sir robert anderson who many people know more for his work on uh daniel chapter 9 daniel's 70th week uh wrote the section the uh, chapter on christ and criticism uh the seventh chapter old testament criticism and the new testament christianity by wh griffith thomas he was an anglican theologian a dispensationalist who was to be the original uh, professor of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. But the summer before the school opened, he died, and so Lewisbury Chafer had to, at the last minute, step in and become the professor uh, of theology. But many others, so, uh, scholars, world-class scholars who wrote uh, articles that came out in the fundamentals uh, of, of the faith, which is where the term uh, fundamentalism uh, originally derived. Now I have another uh, resource up here from Christian History Magazine. Uh, had a, each each one of their magazines had a different focus, and <clears throat> one of them was on the rise of fundamentalism from 1870 to 1950, and they give a little timeline in defining the issues from 1900 to 1920. 1909, they cite the uh, publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, whose notes teach dispensationalism and Keswick holiness. That would not be true. We do not believe that. That was the focal point of the 2011 uh, Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference to show that the our view of sanctification, the view of C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, was not Keswick, but that continues to be uh, stated by many people, even though there have been a number of studies which uh, reject that. But it is important because of its emphasis on biblical inerrancy and infallibility and dispensationalism. Uh, the next major step they identify is from 1910 to 1915, the Fundamentals are published, which promoted a conservative teaching of, the, of uh, conservative theology. Uh, 1910, the Northern Presbyterian Church affirmed five essential doctrines. So this were, would uh, relate to the five fundamentals of the faith, the inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth, Christ's substitutionary atonement, and his bodily resurrection and miracles. Notice, because they're all male, they leave out the literal second coming physical bodily return of Christ uh, to the earth. In 1919, the World's Christian uh, Fundamentals Association formed, which uh, became the uh, uh, largest and longest-lasting international fundamentalist association uh, until the 1940s. And then in 1920, Curtis Lee Laws, who's the editor of the Baptist Watchman Examiner, coined the term fundamentalist to refer to those who believed in the five fundamentals of the faith. Uh, then in 1920, conservatives in the Northern Baptist Convention organized the Fundamentalist Fellowship to combat spreading liberalism. The Nor- it's interesting, the Northern denominations, uh, most all denominations split in the U.S. between North and South leading up to the Civil War, mostly because uh, the uh, Northern uh, Yankee Christians did not want any of their money going to support Southern missionaries who believed in slavery. And so these denominations all split between the early 1940, uh, 1840s and uh, the, just before the Civil War. Uh, all the northern denominations drifted into liberalism decades before their southern 
uh, counterparts did. The southern counterparts all remained uh, all remained more conservative. This is where you get the terms when the southern Methodists rejoined the northern Methodists, it became the United Methodist Church. When the Southern Church of Christ joined Northern, it became the United Church of Christ. When the uh, Southern Presbyterians in the late eight, late 1980s, just a few years, just a couple of decades ago, when the Southern Presbyterians merged with the Northern Presbyterians, it became the United Presbyterian Church. Uh, the Southern Baptists have never joined the Northern Baptists, and the Southern Baptists maintain their conservative uh, stance to this day. There were a number of public confrontations in the in the 20s. In 1923, Gresham Machen published his book, Liberalism and Christianity, which is one of the most uh, scholarly and definitive uh, assaults against liberalism that you can ever read. In 1923, the Baptist Bible Union formed to gather Baptist fundamentalists of various denominations. What happens between the early 20s and the late 30s is about every four or five years, another group of conservative uh, biblicists, I like that term, biblicist, another group of conservatives will leave the Northern Presbyterian Church. So one of these groups became known as the Greater Association of Regular Baptists. Baptist Bible Seminary up in Pennsylvania is a Greater Association of Regular Baptist School. It's a GARB school. Another group that came out was the Conservative Baptist Association, which was founded by three men and and um, including uh, Pastor uh, Bob Thiem's father-in-law was one of the founders of the uh, of the Conservative Baptist Association in the 1930s. In uh, 1924, Evangelical Theological College, the original name for Dallas Seminary, was founded. And 1925, you have the Scopes Trial, where fundamentalism actually won, but they were painted to be so ridiculous uh, that... Uh, uh, it, it really looked bad in Americans' eyes. And then in 1929, uh, the uh, liberals came to control the board of, Presby- of uh, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, and the conservatives left to uh, Gresham Machen, uh, Cornelius Van Til, um, and several others. Oswald T. Alice formed the Westminster Theological Seminary, which initially had both pre-mills and on-mills on the faculty. And it wasn't until uh, several controversies in the 30s that brought about this division between pre-mills and on-mills, which is an interesting story because they originally did not see a problem with dispensationalists or premillennialists on the faculty. And so they split in the in the mid 30s uh, and excluded pre-mills and dispensationalists from being uh, part of this part of the school. And then you have they go on with their timeline in terms of developing uh, uh, mostly within Presbyterians and uh, Northern Baptist fundamentalists. Then you have the rise. Uh, they go back and they trace the rise of liberalism and neo orthodoxy. In the uh, late 19th century, the one thing to note would be 1917, Walter Rauschenbusch's book, A Theology of the Social Gospel. And that is, we're returning to this social gospel idea among liberal evangelicals today, which is just a throwback. We're going through another fundamentalist modernist controversy today. The problem is that most conservatives uh, don't know that and are completely unaware that this is taking place. The key issue, as always, is 
the inerrancy and infallibility of of uh, Scripture. So uh, let's put this slide up here. So in fundamentalism, you have Princeton theology, then dispensationalism, the publication of the fundamentals, which emphasizes uh, inerrancy of the Bible, a literal genesis and miracles, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and his literal future return, as well as a substitutionary atonement. This, in their view, are the must-haves. Without this, you don't have Christianity. So these are the fundamentals uh, of the faith. Then a fourth strand was the uh, assault of Darwinism, which culminates in this, the uh, Scopes trial in 1925. But the, the fundamentalists reject Darwinism and emphasize a literal genesis and a literal creation. And the fifth strand uh, <clears throat> that affects the rise of fundamentalism is the rise of higher criticism, at, which is an assault on uh, biblical authorship uh, and the bib- biblical text. So that brings us sort of up to date. Next thing I want to look at in the next class, we'll get into inspiration. But we have to understand this historical context because today people believe with inspiration. And one of the greatest statements on the inspiration of Scripture came out in the late 70s. Uh, there was a group of theologians, many of my professors at Dallas Seminary were part of this meeting and crafting this document. You may want to look it up on the Internet called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is an extremely lengthy document uh, defining what is meant by the inerrancy of Scripture. But they recognize, those who met at Chicago, they recognize that it's one thing to affirm the literal historicity of the text and the literal inerrancy of the text, but it's another thing to affirm a literal historical grammatical interpretation. And so they recognize that if they don't define what interpretation, then many will give away the, for practical purposes, give away inerrancy by the way they interpret the text. And so they also came out a few years later with a statement on on interpretation, but they couldn't really reach to a, a consensus among evangelicals. And so this laid a groundwork for the erosion that's occurred uh, in, in the view of the uh, text in the Bible among evangelical seminaries and theologians since the late since the late 70s. So the issue is that we have to contend for the truth. And if the truth is is up for grabs, then there is no truth. And so there has to be a set truth. And this is only can only be true if there is a set body of revelation that is inerrant, that is dependable, and that we can trust. And so the very core of whatever it is we say we believe when we contend for the faith, we have to contend for the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the ultimate source. And so we will look at this uh, next time, and we'll start with the inspiration of Scripture. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at these doctrines and to be reminded about the importance of the authority of your word and the fact that you are the one who revealed your word to us, and in your sovereignty you have overseen its preservation 
and you have overseen its transmission down through the centuries so that we have not lost your word at all, but that we can be confident that we have your word before us. And we pray that as we continue this study that we would be challenged and encouraged within our own souls and within our own areas of of life that we would contend uh, for the faith, the truth of Scripture in response to your command to do so. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.